This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Thank you very much, Lee. Uh, welcome, everybody. Thanks for coming this morning. Uh, I, uh, our topic today is rising storm, climate's impacts on infrastructure and housing. Um, and I, we've got a great panel today. Um, and let me just briefly introduce each of the speakers uh, now. And then after each, uh, each will speak for about 10 to 15 minutes. Uh, and then we'll just transition into the next speaker. So at about the 40, 45-minute mark, that point... Um, uh, I will kick off uh, our discussion um, with a question and then uh, turn it over to the audience and you know, ask some questions myself as well. Uh, again, we're trying to look at some of the complexities uh, of these issues, the, the trade-offs um, as well, and the uh, norm for those who have not been to a University of Chicago uh, event or particularly a law school event uh, is that uh, we welcome uh, questions, we like pointed questions, we like good discussion and debate. Um, and so I look forward to hearing your uh, uh, questions and thoughts uh, as well on this. So uh, let me uh, introduce our speakers in the order uh, in which they're going to speak. Uh, our first speaker is going to be Henry Henderson. Henry is the Midwest Director of Natural Resources Defense Council, the <coughs> national and international uh, environmental organization um, that for over 40 years has uh, really um, championed uh, environmental uh, protection uh, and conservation in the country. Uh, Before coming to NRDC, Henry was also the environmental commissioner for the city of Chicago. So he brings a Chicago-based perspective uh, to these issues. Our second speaker is going to be Bill Abold. Bill is currently a vice president with AECOM, the international... I can even use the acronym, Architectural Engineering Construction Operations and Maintenance um, uh, Organization. Um, uh, And uh, Bill, himself having been a former environmental commissioner for the city and former budget director for the city, also has an understanding of Chicago's unique uh, issues. Our third speaker is going to be my colleague on the faculty, Professor Omri Ben-Shahar, who is an expert on contracts, insurance, information um, uh, disclosure, information issues. Uh, Professor Ben-Shahar is also the director of the Coe Sandor Institute for Law and Economics at the law school. So um, uh, I'm going to uh, turn it over to our experts now. First, uh, ask Henry Henderson uh, to speak. Thank you, Mark. Um, is, this, is this okay? Should I turn it up louder? Okay, great. Um, Thank you. I really appreciate uh, being able to talk about this. This is um, the issue of housing and uh, the issues around climate are among the most important things that we have to deal with. Um, There's a huge amount that my organization deals with in terms of trying to address mitigation of the drivers of climate change, which uh, focuses dramatically upon the energy sector in particular. But one of the things we need clearly to do is address how climate change is affecting how we actually live. Uh, There's a great deal that's being done on, uh, on, on how we adapt, but how we adapt as it, as it addresses the housing sector is among one of the, one of the largest questions out there, both in terms of, um, how the housing sector and the built environment can affect uh, uh, us in terms of helping mitigate demand, 
mitigate the demand for energy and thus help address the issue of, um, uh, of, of what are the drivers of, of, of climate change. But very critically, uh, in understanding why it is important to address the issues of climate change, uh, you can see the impact, particularly upon uh, the housing sector, and uh, low and moderate uh, income housing is particularly the focus of where you can see the ravages of climate change that is, that is affecting us. Um, so what I'd like to do is talk, talk about two parts of this. Uh, very quickly, the question of, of, of mitigation, and then talking about um, adaptation as it, as it affects the, the housing sector. Um, the mitigation uh, part, uh, and when we look at housing, um, trying to move into a clean energy economy, one of the most immediate and beneficial ways that we can move forward is to deal with the problem of energy waste. There's a huge amount of waste within the system, which drives a great deal of the, um, uh, of, of the energy sector and the uh, issues of carbon pollution. We're in the midst of a very large effort nationally to put in place a way to mitigate the energy sector, particularly fossil fuels, and particularly the, one, the, the largest sector of, uh, of greenhouse gases in the United States, which come from coal-fired power plants. And getting rid of the waste within the energy sector is a very good way to transition off of aging, dirty, greenhouse gas-emitting uh, coal plants. Um, a lot has been focused on things like in Chicago, the, um, the, the large commercial sector. And it's something that um, uh, actually Bill and I have been working on with the city a great deal, is how you move the large built environment in the, uh, in the business core uh, into greater and greater efficiency. It does a whole range of things, like it creates jobs, it saves money uh, for building owners and managers, and at the same time it gra- builds greater uh, not just efficiency, but reliability in the, in, in the energy sector because there's less demand going across the, um, uh, the wires. Um, but a very large part of the demand within the energy sector has to do with, uh, with, with housing. And housing uh, is very rich opportunity with regard to mitigation of, of, of demand, uh, but it is extraordinarily hard to reach because it is so diffuse and so spread out uh, that programs that um, utilities can, can deliver are very hard to deliver for the many, many small users, which cumulatively have a huge impact on, on, on the energy, energy demand. Um, it's also an equity question. You've got a very large part of uh, low, low to moderate income uh, housing, which uh, can benefit dramatically from a reduction of demand and greater efficiency with regard to, uh, to the demand to keep their homes ha- uh, uh, cooled and heated as appropriate. So you've got, you've got a big uh, effort that can go forward with regard to mitigation, but also deliver immediate benefits to people who are uh, saving a little bit of money on their, on, their, on their monthly bills can mean a great deal for them. In addition to which, you've got this issue of, um, of, of adaptation. A large part of um, the uh, built environment was built for an entirely different regime, weather regime. Different weather regime, both in terms of heat and cold, uh, and also with regard to, to flooding. Um, in Chicago, the issue of 
heat in the summer is not an abstract issue. Uh, I think we, there's that uh, wonderful MIT book um, called Heat Wave, which is about, uh, in the mid-1990s, 95, I believe, uh, a heat wave hung in the city of Chicago and ended up incinerating, um, killing a large number of people in their homes, which were not built in or in, in, with the understanding of this new weather regime. So you have a series of homes which uh, actually heat up dramatically, um, a range of people who are not able to uh, afford uh, uh, cooling in the summer, and uh, the transformation of the neighborhoods where it's very difficult to spend a lot of time with your windows open and sleep out in the park at night uh, creates a problem where you stay in your homes and you uh, overheat, and uh, there's a large, you know, hundreds of people died from, uh, from, from heat problems. So addressing the heat demand... Uh, the energy demand and the nature of the built environment, which is built for an entirely different uh, climate regime, is an important social issue, an important uh, uh, equity issue, and it's also a way of getting at the demand within, for energy within, within the, uh, the built environment on a part of the community that really needs this. Another part of the adaptation question, which is something that uh, we're very much looking at and aware of, is the problem of different um, storm regimes. Um, We have seen coming over the the last 15 years greater and greater intensity, greater and greater um, uh, amount of water falling at at, at one short period of time uh, within, within our communities. The result of that has been dramatic flooding of, of the city, dramatic flooding of property, uh, with huge impacts with regard to health, safety, and property values. Um, you can see uh, a range of responses from this. Yesterday in the Trib, there was a large story about uh, Albany Park and the repeated inundation that Albany Park uh, in the city of Chicago has experienced with homes flooding uh, in unprecedented amount of time, and the response to the city is uh, essentially a $50 million tunnel to take the water from Albany Park and dump it in the North Branch to Chicago River. Um, that's a large amount of money uh, to deal with this issue, and it's moving the problem from one community to another community. Uh, Winnetka is in the process of having a very large public debate about uh, about, 100, uh, about 1,100 homes which are now flooding at an unprecedented rate in the, in the village of Winnetka, the answer that the village is thinking about is a very, very large pipe which would be built to take water from, uh, from the village and dump it in Lake Michigan um, at a very, very high rate of, of investment. Um, we believe that it's taking a similar kind of approach toward managing water, managing floods, and replicating it for uh, the 21st century in ways that simply move the problem elsewhere. Again, we have the question of a built environment where instead of hardwiring an inflexible response, which delivers a problem to another part of the community with associated pollution in that, that there are other ways to look at this from the point of view of the built environment, uh, actually building flexibility into it. It's something that, another thing that uh, uh, we're working with, with uh, Bill's firm, in terms of thing called green infrastructure, where you again take the problem and look at the fact that it is highly dispersed, and you come up with 
solutions that disperse the solution, where you catch the rain where it falls, um, you treat the rain not as a waste management problem, but as a resource opportunity, and you disperse the solutions. Now, part of the problem with that is our entire governance structure is based upon central control of managing flooding, which is why building a very, very uh, expensive capital, uh, capital demanding and inflexible system that can be controlled at, with a central authority is what the current central authorities like to do. The difficulty of finding a highly dispersed solution where it requires a great many people to work together in tandem to manage this is, is a big problem. Uh, so we have to evolve not just how to institute a better set of solutions, but also a governance structure that takes account for how many people operating independently uh, actually can uh, answer the problem more efficiently uh, more effectively and for the long term with greater flexibility. Now, where does this happen with, with housing? Well, you can see it happening in remarkably you know, well-heeled parts of the community. Uh, it affects us all. But it particularly affects, in a very burdensome way, low to moderate income uh, uh, communities and housing. Uh, there was a, um, an interesting story about a year ago in the Washington Post um, called the uh, Chicago Climate Maggots. I thought that was interesting. I, don't, I thought at first it was going to be about us. But, um, uh, but it was actually about uh, flooding on south side of Chicago where um, uh, focused on a particular family that has been, uh, the family has been in this particular house for several generations. And what's happened over the last 10 years is the flooding of the basement has occurred over and over and over again with cleanups that are in, uh, in thousands of dollars in a community that cannot stand unplanned impact of $1,000 happening over and over again. It drives down the property values. It also has an immediate uh, health and safety issue, and it has a cascading impact in terms of abandonment of housing. Uh, so parts of the city, which are particularly vulnerable <coughs> to shocks of, of, of income, which can be managed by other parts of the, of the community more effectively, are being inundated. So you move from this, this thing of, again, figuratively underwater because of bad mortgages to literally underwater because of change, climate change impacts, which are driving abandonment, further impoverishment, and further decay of, of our urban community. And it's, again, where you see the most visible, intense impact of climate change on the housing sector. So the need to, again, disperse the solutions, make it possible for people to invest and manage within their own community and with their own property uh, the, the, the impacts of climate change from heat storms to the increasing amount of, 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 of inundation from, uh, from rainstorms is a critical part of what needs to happen in terms of reforming what our housing policy is, what our government policy is with regard to uh, risk and management, and to change the way we are thinking about uh, otherwise abstract issues like climate change, which doesn't simply have to do with a lonely polar bear floating off into uh, the Arctic Sea on a shrinking uh, piece of ice. It has to do with uh, the disintegration of the communities we depend upon for our quality of life here in Chicago and other parts of the city, uh, other parts of the country. 
So um, that's my overview. And I <coughs> note I did not have a PowerPoint because I think they're very bourgeois. <laughs> On to my PowerPoint. He has a yes. How do I call it up? one? This one? Oh, there we go. Is that? Okay. I'm going to uh, I'm going to stand over here if it's all right so you guys can see my bourgeois PowerPoint. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> uh, Spent a little time talking about uh, the impact of, uh, of climate. And the, the reality is that uh, Climate, particularly in uh, coastal areas, uh, is having a pretty profound impact uh, on our communities, on uh, where people uh, live and work throughout those communities, and on the underlying infrastructure that uh, supports those uh, supports those communities. It is a particularly uh, acute and worrisome problem uh, in a world that is increasingly urbanized. Uh, you know, Henry described the the solutions that we've come up with, particularly as it relates to infrastructure and community building uh, in cities over the last, you know, more than 100 years. Uh, and it's very focused on concentration of development and development of expensive centralized infrastructure uh, that manages problems. The challenges of urbanization uh, is that as those, uh, as areas become more urban, the solutions have to become uh, bigger, particularly uh, bigger and more expensive, and they become bigger and more expensive, particularly if we treat uh, the the challenges of cities like managing stormwater uh, uh, as a uh, as a problem and not, that has to be disposed of, and not as a resource uh, that can help build more livable, uh, resilient, and uh, sustainable uh, sustainable communities. Uh, so we have a significant challenge, and the challenge is a challenge of uh, both mitigation, the, so the need to significantly reduce the energy intensity of our daily lives, again, at home and work, uh, to reduce the energy intensity of how we get from place to place uh, and how the built environment performs in terms of overall energy. And we need to recognize the direct link uh, between water consumption and management, whether we're taking it out to drink or sending it back off to be cleaned, uh, and overall energy consumption. Uh, the management of water resources is one of the most energy-intensive uh, activities uh, that cities, communities, uh, and people are, are engaged with. So we've got a climate challenge, and the climate challenge is one of adaptation and mitigation. And what we're finding as we look at uh, cities around, uh, around the country, and this is particularly an issue uh, for uh, policy and programmatic design, and it's a, it is a f solving the problem in many ways is going to be a challenge of rewriting laws and requirements to make sure that uh, solutions uh, can work and that investments can be made. Because the reality is we not only have kind of ancient, underperforming, overwhelmed infrastructure, infrastructure. we have to some extent uh, underperforming and overwhelm, uh, overwhelmed rules as it relates to how we manage, uh, how we manage uh, stormwater, wastewater, and how we produce resilience, uh, and how we uh, pay for it. 
you know, we have built a system, much like a lot of our central kind of utility infrastructure, whether it's energy or water, we have built a system that focuses on uh, taking away problems and bringing them to central points and then trying to figure out what to do with them. Uh, we also have within our, uh, with, at least within the U.S., a real aversion to, uh, to fully paying for the promises that our, policy, uh, that our policymakers make. Uh, most of our uh, stormwater and uh, a lot of environmental requirements, uh, as well as the fee uh, structures, are designed uh, as single-purpose, single-focused uh, approaches uh, that really make it difficult to implement uh, decentralized, sustainable uh, strategies uh, that produce better incomes for uh, people, more affordable housing, more park space, uh, more open space, and manage the water at the same time. Uh, so we have a challenge that we have to face on a fairly rapid basis uh, that will require a good deal of reinvention uh, and, uh, and innovation uh, in everything from the rules of the game to how we finance projects uh, to uh, the performance that we expect. Uh, and before I'm going to get into a discussion about a, a project that we've been working for with the city of San Francisco that I think uh, reflects how some governments are trying to come to grips uh, with uh, the reality of both the challenges of climate and the expectation of our, uh, of our infrastructure. Uh, and bottom line is we're redefining infrastructure. We're redefining it in a world that focuses on uh, resilience and sustainability. Uh, and we are, uh, we are trying to uh, define what performance means. And I think a good example, uh, NRDC, uh, uh, ACOM, a number of other firms recently worked with the governments in the area, City of Chicago, uh, Page County, and others, to uh, work on uh, a plan that uh, HUD had out. So Housing and Urban Development had a $1 billion grant competition uh, for resilient communities focused on the roughly 70 communities around the country, cities and states, that had uh, been declared disaster areas. And the idea was to figure out how you could solve or address the issues of, disa- of the disaster uh, and uh, do it in a way that uh, provides both better, more resilient infrastructure uh, and uh, builds livable communities. Uh, the city and the surrounding suburbs would focus primarily, uh, or their problem was primarily one of flooding. And not the kind of catastrophic flooding that they had as a consequence of Hurricane Sandy or that they had uh, down in uh, New Orleans. Instead, it's, it's the problem that Henry talked about. The constant flooding of people's basements, the constant uh, erosion of value in homes, uh, the kind of chronic problems that often uh, are most significant and have the most profound impact uh, on uh, the people and communities with the least means to resolve the problem. Uh, It is a constant uh, uh, kind of drip-drip of uh, loss of value, degradation, creation of problems. Uh, It is a little hard to make the jump that uh, creating some green infrastructure in parks is going to solve all of the problems of those communities. Uh, but trying to figure out how to make better, more coordinated investments, particularly investments that are very splintered in communities, they're splintered in states, they're even splintered in the federal government. How to take all of that money and put it together in in a way that works for people, uh, works for communities, is really what the challenge we're talking about. Uh, And again, at the heart of the challenge is the reality that uh, our rules are not set up to promote and invest in sustainability. 
Uh, and communities, I think in particular, uh, have probably the best position uh, to do the integration, to create the dialogue, create the discussion, and create the conditions in which investments uh, can take place. So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the city of San Francisco and a project we've been working on for some time. Whoop. What happened? Don't use that one. How's this one? Hey, there we go. All right, all right. Uh, the city of San Francisco is, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a leader in sustainability. It's on, uh, it's on water. It has significant challenges. Uh, it's got, you know, a, a very, it's got an old uh, sewer system, uh, and a, the need to uh, address everything from combined sewer overflows, which is essentially uh, old sewer systems. In case you don't know, old sewer systems are built on. Uh, uh, taking stormwater, wastewater, putting them together, uh, and they manage the system getting overwhelmed by dumping sewage directly, untreated sewage directly into water bodies. Uh, it's not exactly the smartest thing to do, but it is a, uh, it's the reality of lots of our old infrastructure. Uh, they have a significant uh, uh, need to manage that compliance obligation. They also have a significant uh, desire to improve communities. And San Francisco did something interesting. A lot of infrastructure agencies have this thing called level of service. Uh, and particularly as they get more fiscally constrained, they try to uh, prioritize what they're going to do to make sure that they maintain a level of service. The CTA is a good example. They've got to keep tracks up to a certain level of condition. Uh, San Francisco had a fairly novel idea, and they decided that sustainability and being a good neighbor was going to become a level of service. It was going to become a quantifiable thing that they could and should invest towards. Uh, and they decided to uh, insert this idea of level of service. And again, that's a, you know, that's a government policy. It's a local government deciding its sewers need to perform better. Uh, it decided to apply that idea of a level of a service to a $6.8 billion uh, sewer program, and they wanted level of service to include uh, significant issues of sustainability and focus on a series of not just centralized plants, but look at the individual communities that are served. Uh, and they were faced with making these investments uh, in, uh, uh, in an environment of significant challenges in terms of, uh, in terms of the condition of the system, the availability of resources, uh, the, the compliance obligations associated with, the di with their discharges, uh, and the reality of climate change and rising, uh, rising sea levels uh, in more intense storms uh, and real challenges of uh, resilience uh, and loading those on top of the standard kind of nuisance conditions that often you get with uh, managing sewage, which is things like odor, uh, you know, odor and noise. Uh, and they realized that not only do they have to solve it with a level of service definition, they had to figure out uh, how, that, uh, how the problem is solved. You know, it's not just about central plants anymore. To really solve a problem uh, that uh, go, extends out into the community, that's not just in the public space, but it's in the individual private buildings themselves, you really have to have a mix of programmatic responses. You need specific capital projects. Uh, you need overall programmatic strategies to knit together the physical infrastructure. And, and you need policies and rules and regulations and requirements. Uh, and your system's only going to work when you tie them all together. 
uh, and the reality of, uh, of San Francisco and a lot of other communities is once you start demanding things like green infrastructure or energy efficiency or distributed resources and it becomes more than a symbolic action, you really decide to spend money on it, uh, the challenge becomes how you make it all work together and how you integrate the gray with the green. Uh, and what San Francisco developed was a... It's called a triple bottom line, fairly kind of uh, standard, kind of cliche, like, you know, bourgeois presentation, cliche idea. Of, uh, but essentially, how do they start making their decisions so it's not just about uh, the, the water in the pipes and centralized plants, and how do they think about it in a, uh, 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 in a more effective sort of way? And particularly, how do they think about their investments in a way that justifies their ability to spend sewer money on it? Uh, we're going to talk a little bit later about things like, uh, uh, like insurance and uh, the specific requirements of the insurance industry. Most of the infrastructure agencies that uh, groups like Henry will be advocating uh, uh, in front of have specific rules and requirements. And the first and foremost uh, rule and requirement that you've got to meet to get a different type of solution is you have to justify that that entity can spend its money on the problem. Uh, and so they uh, decided to develop a specific strategy that incorporated uh, uh, considerations of, of uh, local communities, uh, green infrastructure, resilience, affordability uh, in their overall capital planning, their programmatic design. Uh, and it really becomes a challenge of how do you put environmental concerns, social com and community concerns, community development strategies, issues of equity, uh, how do you put those front and center in the discussion? Uh, and putting it front and center means that you have to be able to quantify it. The most significant challenge that you have putting these things uh, into the discussion is figuring out how to measure it. Uh, so San Francisco came up with a, uh, a strategy uh, that allows them to look at issues like resilience, community development, uh, affordability, uh, that overall kind of bundle of uh, social benefits, and put it on equal footing uh, with financial considerations and come up with specific strategies to uh, define and measure that performance. Uh, they came up with a strategy uh, that uh, makes it way more complex to make decisions, uh, but also uh, they came up with some ways to cut through that complexity. Uh, it's a triple bottom line strategy that's applied to every single project they do. Uh, and they look at both the, the performance of individual projects and the performance of their overall program. Uh, and they're thinking about, and by the, by the way, uh, in this uh, kind of, you know, here's the financial considerations, the community considerations, and the environmental ones. They're looking for outcomes that uh, produce more blue, you know, blue is good, deeper blue is better, uh, and uh, red, is, uh, red is bad, red and pink. Uh, it uh, really makes them think about things like when they say system resilience, what do they mean? You know, they mean taking areas out of the flood plain, reducing, uh, reducing risk in terms of basement flooding. They mean, uh, they mean coming up with specific strategies to make sure that systems aren't, uh, aren't overwhelmed. Uh, each time they come up with an idea, they have to have uh, specific ways of measuring it. They have to have data that's available to them. Uh, and then they have to have ways to uh, rate it. Uh, they use a kind of color coding system because the reality is they're trying to avoid a level of kind of false pre precision. You're just trying to get cities, uh, states, and others to think about the issues 
uh, and think about them in an uh, integrated fashion. Uh, I'm going to go real quickly through the types of criteria, but these are the things that you, uh, that you have to think about. You know, uh, there are kind of standard environmental considerations. Uh, the real issues and challenges for communities is focusing in on wh- what are the real values and issues that they're trying to address locally. You know, is it a matter of affordability? Is it property value uh, increases? Is it uh, creation of open space uh, and park, uh, parkland? Uh, and these are the kinds of outputs you get, you know, mitigated flood risk, specifics around greenhouse gas. Uh, the interesting thing, particularly about some of the solutions that we're going to find in terms of mitigation and adaptation, those solutions are inherently uh, positive for communities, whether it's investing in energy efficiency as a mitigation strategy in a local community, keeping the lights on, uh, creating parks and open space as a way of managing stormwater. Uh, it is a strategy that invests in uh, and improves communities overall. Uh, and we found in San Francisco has found that thinking about those in a very conscious sort of way uh, produce a better, uh, a better result in performance. This is just a real quick example. Uh, you know, San Francisco had to resolve some specific challenges. They looked at four specific types of, uh, of projects, uh, and they were able to evaluate each one of the projects. They could understand, you know, without uh, having to know what the numbers were, that red, oh, that's a bad one. Uh, a dark blue, ooh, there must be some good stuff here. Uh, and it allows you almost in a dashboard fashion uh, to think quickly to get to a solution. The solution that they've talked about here you know, essentially is, is creation of more park space, creation of more park space uh, that, uh, that also manages stormwater. Previously, if you went to the park district and said, you need to do the stormwater pro- challenge, the parks would say, what are you doing? You're trying to steal our money that's preserved. It's hard enough to fight for money for the parks. We can't possibly do it. If you went to the sewer agents, say, we don't build parks. We build pipes. This is a specific strategy to overcome the silos that we as a society have created for uh, our communities, mostly with good public policy objectives. We want to protect taxpayers. But the reality is when resources become really tight, when you're thinking in an integrated fashion about how to rebuild communities, you have to uh, deploy your tools and resources in an integrated fashion. You can't go back to siloed thinking. Uh, this allows them to compare uh, solutions, to address things like odor, uh, focus on practical reality of construction schedules, and come up with more uh, integrated offerings and opportunities. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, good. Just away from it. Just move your thing a little bit. So, I'd, I'd like to talk about insurance, and you're already bored uh, <laughs> from just uh, saying that word. Uh, but I think I have a couple of crispy uh, ideas that uh, relate to insurance of the type of problems that have been discussed by the previous authors, uh, previous speakers, in, uh, severe weather-related risks like a flood and, uh, and uh, windstorm, uh, and how, the world, how private insurance can operate as a, have a social function in preparedness for the changes 
uh, the, the escalating uh, severity of these kind of uh, uh, um, harms. Um, the, this picture kind of sets up part of the tone for what I'm, I'm kind of interested in. This is part of an academic study that I'm doing uh, that looks at mostly at flood insurance but other types of severe weather insurance. This is a, a bird's eye view of a you know, strip of housing along the Atlantic coast, generic one, uh, everywhere, you know, anywhere from Florida up to South Carolina. That's what it looks like. We're building, we're built all the way down to the uh, water. And the uh, rectangle, uh, marked rectangle area is an area that will be flooded 60 years from now, according to the best predictions that we have at weather models. Uh, <clears throat> This is a, people live there. Their homes will be flooded. Their homes get, get washed by severe weather and flooded and sometimes destroyed every, you know, cycle. In call this cycle, these cycles become tighter and tighter and rebuilt. And so we don't have some kind of gradual response to the uh, inundation and flooding and erosion that is occurring in many areas. We're just waiting for it to happen. And I think that there is a solution. And the solution is let insurance markets work. Let insurance markets price the cost of you know, living in there, living there. If you want to move and live in this area, you have to buy insurance. And you can either take the risk, you're going to own a home that will be flooded in 60 years from now, or insure it. But insurance will give you a price signal for the risk. It will be very different to live in this rectangle as opposed to across the street. And we might want to still live across the street because we like coastal properties and living close to water, but not that close. We need to know to make the trade-off as homeowners, as home buyers, and we need to get some price signal. We don't currently get it, and I'll tell you the story why. And, and the several unintended consequences of how a government, in trying to help people, unfortunately, in some of the ways that uh, uh, um, Henry suggested we help people, has led to some unintended consequences. So I'm going to open up kind of a, a little bit of a controversy here. Uh, so severe weather insurance, very briefly, the background, severe weather insurance in the U.S. is done into, addresses two primary perils. Wind, severe wind, and severe flooding. Uh, wind is traditionally covered by homeowners insurance policies. And they, but in areas where we have a lot of storms, the insurance policies will be expensive. Whether you live in Tornado Alley or along the hurricane corridors of the southeast, uh, it's going to be expensive. And when after a few hurricanes led insure, the insurance industry to raise the prices, the rates got regulated which means that the private insurers largely exited these markets or created more exclusions for severe weather. The response in many states was to keep the regulated rates, not to release them, but to offer subsidized policies. The most important such state-run insurance company is in Florida called Citizens Insurance. It basically sells all, underwrites all the windstorm coverage in <coughs> homeowners' policies. It is sold, the policies are sold through private companies, all states, State Farm and the like, but the, the risk is borne and paid and subsidized for in a significant way by the state of Florida, by taxpayers. The other peril is flood. 
This is traditionally not covered by homeowners insurance policies. Most people don't know, but their homeowners policies ex exclude coverage for uh, water damage of any kind, including flood. But it is offered as a separate endorsement, but when you see the premium difference, it is enormous. It's the difference between paying $800 a year to $5,000 a year in play. So people don't buy it. And people, then they, historically what happened is that when we had major storm, the government provided relief. It was very costly, just like we did in Superstorm <coughs> Sandy. And the solution that was devised two generations ago was the National Flood Insurance Plan. We will give people subsidized policies for flood as long as their community participates in a, a, a flood a, mitigation kind of construction codes and zoning that address flood mitigation and flood management. But the rates are heavily subsidized. What, are, what I'm asking is, what are the effects of these subsidized rates? I mean, the idea here is an idea of equity to allow people, middle income, moderate income, to afford living in areas like, you know, that are, that are flood prone, like along the Mississippi River, Every time there is a big debate in Congress or in state legislature about these subsidies, um, the poster cases are some, you know, Louisiana parishes that are very poor people that have lived there for generations and are suffering uh, recurring floods. And uh, the subsidies are justified as a type of progressive, pro-poor, pro... It's not for the affluent, it's for the working families um, as a way to make it more affordable. Uh, there are two effects that I want to quickly uh, go after. One has to do with efficiency, and the other has to do with equity. Both are unintended and are dramatically, you know, bad, I think. Um, and uh, and uh, I have some evidence to, to, suggest, to, to uh, document that. First, there is the problem of distorted price signals. We don't know what it costs to live in the path of storms because the cost is suppressed through the subsidies. If I have to decide whether to develop or to move into a new community in Florida that is along the Gulf Coast, uh, as many of these communities have been developed over the last 50 years, I might not move there if my insurance policy per year was $10,000 a year. But I might move there if it's 1500 could make a big difference, uh, and that leads to overdevelopment of floodplains because the demand is artificially enhanced. In fact, 10 million people moved to coastal Florida, hurricane corridor, since 1960. If Hurricane Andrew, the greatest storm that, that Florida endured in 1992, that plowed through South Florida and left $25 billion of losses, we've redeveloped that land. And now, if it were to strike again, it would cost $55 billion, in more than double, in property losses, holding the costs using, you know, the same dollar metric, namely not accounting even for the rise in construction costs, and et cetera. If in, in, in the coastal Florida area, if the rates were to be charged according to actuarial methodology, that, you know, predictive methodology, people would have to pay in many of these areas like in the, the, that strips that we saw in the aerial view, about $10 per $100 of coverage. That means uh, that's the high end. But that's an enormous amount of money. 
And no, very few policyholders around the country would be able to afford that. We know from surveys that people usually are not willing to pay more than $2 for home insurance for every $100 of coverage. So people will not buy this or will not move in. Uh, I mean, there is a way to kind of decide, okay, I can't afford flood insurance, but I still want to live in that, in that area. That might happen, but at least rational response would be to pay less for the house if I'm not insured for it and it can get destroyed. It also reflects, and this has to do with, I think that's a little bit why I'm here today, this problem reflects on how we respond to climate change, and it slows, slows the reaction to climate change. If we had to pay, if the cost, the, the risk is rising because of climate change, and I don't know if it is or not. I mean, I'm not, I don't have a skin in this yeah, ideological debate about climate change. But what I know is that insurance cannot afford to have an ideological view. If there are predictive models that suggest that the intensity of storm is growing, for whatever reason it is, it's going to be priced. If it's going to be priced, it's going to affect the behavior and divert people away from high-risk areas and lower the value of homes in the high-risk areas, which might create political pressure to do something about rising levels and erosion. The effect would come through cost through people's pockets, uh, and, uh, and so I, I see this as a value for insurance as a driver for political action in places where we, the data shows the risk is rising. There is a technical problem. How do you price? The, I, I'll, I'll skip that because I don't have time for that. The other uh, um, the, the problem has to do with the fact that insurance is sold year by year, and you don't pay now for the fact that it will be costly to live there 60 years from now. And the idea that I have in developing elsewhere is something like property life insurance, where you, just like your life insurance policies are spread throughout your life and you pay now for your future risks, so it will be in the uh, property, uh, but the market has not developed that tool yet. Um, I've, uh, okay, the, the other effect that I want to talk about is redistribution. So the story that we've seen so far, this dramatic overdevelopment of coastal areas, is not new. People realize that and understand that that is the effect, in large part, of the subsidized uh, um, premiums. But there is a response to it, like a trump card, that overrides these concerns with inefficient, distorted in, uh, develop, uh, development. And the response is affordability, equity. We can't leave fellow Americans to suffer alone in the, in, against these disasters, climate disasters. We have to come to the rescue. And one way, to, uh, the most, one way to come to the rescue is not to wait for it to happen and provide post-disaster relief, but come to the rescue in advance and encourage people to buy insurance and make it affordable. Affordability is the name of the game. And uh, the, the idea is, and this has played out in recent statute that was passed by Congress in 2014 called the um, Flood Insurance Affordability Act. The idea is that the subsidies go to uh, poor or middle-income or moderate-income Americans, working-class people, not millionaires, who would otherwise not be able to buy flood insurance. The, just in, I'll just bracket this. In 2014, just a few months ago, the Congress passed an act that repealed a previous 
Act that, was, that passed in 2012. In 2012, very briefly, after Superstorm Sandy, and in light of the enormous multi-billion dollar deficit that the flood federal flood insurance subsidy plan suffered, a bipartisan majority passed a bill of scaling back these subsidies. I think we can't keep giving them. They have to be gradually cut down. The first round of elevated premiums for the flood insurance, federal flood insurance policies were sent to people in the beginning of 2014, and there was an immediate backlash. People called their representatives, and it took two months for Congress in the era of gridlock to pass another bipartisan bill repealing the 2012 statute and restoring the subsidies. So they're back. So as if nothing happened, we, the 2014 eliminate, we're back to the old national flood insurance plan uh, regime. And uh, I think that the story, uh, now this is my argument, the story of affordability and equity and helping working class Americans is not true. It is a cover-up. The data does not uh, confirm that. Now, the data that I have comes from Florida, not from the National Flood Insurance Plan. This I'm working on getting that the data. They don't keep as good data as the Florida state insurance that, remember, covers wind damages that are the other effect of severe weather. So from Florida, I was able to get the information about the policies that they send, they sell. And they sell, as we said, all the severe weather policies in the state for wind, more than half a million data points. For each policy, I know what they're charging. And I know they also indicate in it, because they have under Florida statute, how much, what is the shortfall, how much premium they would have to charge in addition for this to be actuarially sound and not subsidized by the state. And each policy is different. And now you can look and start and see who gets the subsidies, which property, which insurance, uh, which clients. Uh. And so this is a map of what I found out, and I'll also give you a more uh, exact estimate. But the map shows you the green, you know, the, the, the different areas are the storm districts or, or insurance districts. There are about 150 of them priced differently. Areas in white get no subsidy. Areas in green get some subsidy, and deep green get the biggest subsidy. And then I plotted on it dots where poor people live and rich people live, kind of crudely speaking. And you see that the deep green is usually red dots with affluent, and light green or white are blue dots, no subsidy areas. This begins to tell us a story that is not surprising. We know who lives close to water. <coughs> People that live close to water are more affluent because it's much more expensive to be close to water. We also know that that's where the most, most of the subsidy would lie because that's where the high risk is. In the, specifically, I found that very roughly, I can go through the details, that the 1% increase in the <coughs> wealth of the policyholder is associated with almost 1% increase in the subsidy. So someone who is twice as wealthy gets 100% more subsidy in terms of absolute dollars and roughly that also in terms of you know, relative subsidy. So the percentage of uh, subsidy is, is ri rising. We know that the same is true, although I don't have the exact data to give you the regression estimates, the same is true for the National Flood Insurance Plan this is from a congressional budget report, again, a bipartisan report of experts that the NFIP subsidizes 
subsidies go disproportionately to high-value homes, to homes in wealthy districts, to vacation homes, second homes, homes that worth the, more than the maximum coverage that is sold by them. So all are indicators that the affluent are receiving the subsidy, not working-class Americans. Not, this is not what we heard in the congressional, what I found in congressional records, where we need to subsidize this. The NFIP is a moral duty to the poor, poorest people in working, uh, and working people in lower middle-income people, says Representative Barney Frank, who has many constituents living in Cape Cod. Uh, uh, and the same is true for other representatives. And this is, by the way, a kind of statement you know, that you see all politicians march to the podium in the 2014 act that I mentioned. I looked at the congressional record. They all say the same thing. And this is the kind of message that they convey. This message is incorrect, misleading. And I think that, therefore, uh, it is, uh, uh, these subsidies should be repealed. And these programs should end. Now, I'm standing, I'm standing here, I feel like an idiot, because in 2012, that's exactly what Congress did. But they undid it, right? So what's the point of, you know, of saying something that obviously will not happen, right? Well, I hope that by looking at the effects and getting a sense of what is really underlying, maybe that can help understand, you know, at least for people that pay attention to, the, to, to facts rather than slogans, it will pay, make a, a difference. It would also make a difference to know, and then this is, and with this I will end, that this is, that there is a dramatic difference in the way we regulate our insurance for severe weather when you compare tornadoes and hurricanes. If you look at this chart, you can see that tornadoes, that the upper uh, roll, severe thunderstorm, create an average insured loss, average loss, that is roughly similar to the, that of tropical cyclones, the, fourth, the fifth row, hurricanes. By far the two most uh, significant types of uh, weather events and uh, insurable events. Now, tornadoes receive insurance against tornadoes, wind damage largely in non-coastal areas, in the, you know, in the Great Plains, get no subsidies. Not from states, because in those states, Tennessee, Oklahoma, don't have a subsidized program like Florida. Not from the federal government, because these are not flood losses. They also hit more people of lower income who have homes without basements, built poorly, get blown off, the trailer parks and the poorly built homes. These people get no subsidy. Hurricane effects, we just saw, get all these, you know, state and federal money coming in to help people afford insurance. They hit mostly coastal areas and very close to the water. That's where the flood, the storm surge happens. Much more affluent people live there. So the irony is that in the name of affordability and equity, we have created exactly the opposite scheme that when we should have. And here I will stop. It's nothing to do with Chicago, as you saw, but... Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Thank you very much, Omri. Sure. <coughs> um, I'm going to start with an initial question for the three panelists and very much look forward to then welcoming questions from you all uh, as well. So I, I guess a, a first question I have is sort of a larger question, which is about, you know, the 
I'll say, the appropriate role of government or what, what our expectations are of government. And, and I think about that particularly in the context of some of these distributed um, solutions um, that we've talked about, um, where uh, at least I, I, I think from the um, electric utility world, um, it's struggling with some of these similar issues in terms of individuals wanting to put you know, solar panels on the roofs, put solar panels on the grid, the utilities um, want to make sure that power is available to people all of the time, concerned about reliability kind of issues. And I think that there's some similar kinds of issues here that might arise in the context of, well, we who run the centralized sewer system, a governmental entity, you know, it's uh, uh, Metropolitan Water Reclamation District here in Chicago, which is its own independent government entity, it's going to be held accountable for these sewer backups, um, even if there are problems that are coming from the local municipality and their feeding lines. And so that creates political imperatives, political incentives for these entities to sort of look for centralized solutions, which they're already used to, because they you know, may have concerns about the distributed type solutions. And, and similarly, you know, the role of government, back to Omri's point, you know, insurance markets seem to be very distributed right, in the sense of individual policyholders. Yet there's this idea that government essentially, because of political considerations, is coming back in and putting a cap on the, on, on the premium. So I guess the question I'd sort of throw out is, you know, t- starting with you, Henry, you know, thinking about you know, what is the role of government, particularly in these distributed uh, type solutions that uh, you're t- you've been talking about, uh, well, I, I think that uh, if you're, you're looking at sewer systems, uh, water treatment, uh, electricity uh, systems, they, they would not exist but for government. They are the creation of, uh, of, of, of government entities. Uh, the, uh, the, the utility structure was, in fact, invented in Chicago uh, as a brainchild of Sam Insel, one of my uh, favorite people in the history of the universe, who was a brilliant guy as, a, as an engineer, as a finance genius, as a as a regul uh, as a regulator thinker, and as a as as a, a government innovator, he created the integrated um, electric utility that um, uh, is 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 what made America a, a, an amazing electric thing. And it could not happen but for government, which created a series of uh, monopolies. Uh, that regulated um, uh, things like Commonwealth Edison was a regulated monopoly within a particular area where they could not, uh, uh, where they did not have to deal with uh, with competition at all, and they uh, uh, thus expanded and grew around a particular a particular integrated system which was very centralized. Um, the the sewer systems we live with are in many ways the same thing, a creation basically of. Uh, 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 the ones we live with now, creation of the 19th century, in terms of dealing with a range of, uh, of problems of, uh, of flooding and uh, gunk within our central cities. So that it's a particular structure of government thinking. We are in the business of trying to take that apart. Uh, our office is in the Opera Building, which was the brainchild of Sam Insel, and I like to think about every day we work to take apart his system in a building he <laughs> built, um, which um, uh, it has to do with creating opportunities for innovation, 
creating areas that uh, of, 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 of government and, and self-reliance outside of, of a central system. I don't think we can get to where we need to get in terms of uh, safe, reliable um, uh, electricity without taking, taking apart the governance structure that we presently have. And we certainly aren't going to be able to deal with flooding. Uh, your point, I, I was waiting for the controversial point that you said you were going to talk about. There was nothing you said that I don't fundamentally agree with, uh, that we have a system that delivers benefits to the already highly benefited. We have subsidies of incumbent interests. Uh, the, the, the language around equity is a language around how do you make sure that those who have the most equity continue to maintain equity. Um, uh, and, uh, and that's not the way we're using equity. We're using equity in a different sense. You have um, the, the, the city of Winnetka, which is looking at putting in millions and millions and millions of dollars in terms of a, a, a tunnel to take water from highly, highly expensive property and dump it in our lake, okay? Which is a, a public trust reality. Um, and uh, they do not want to distribute the responsibility of taking care of water where it falls. They want to have a central pipe that dumps this onto the public. Uh, we have Winneka, in fact, some of the dirtiest beaches in, in the Great Lakes system because they dump stuff into the public trust area. Um, we, have, as an, we have this thing at Albany Park delivering water to the North Branch uh, sewer, sewer uh, ditch, uh, as opposed to looking at how do we actually put solutions into the south side and west side of Chicago. It's that they have buildings, homes, et cetera, that flood all of the time. And the MWRD, Water Reclamation District, who has a sense of trying to keep basements dry, they don't. They deliver sewage to people's basements on a regular basis. And when they're not delivering it to people's basements, they're dumping it in the Chicago River through their combined sewer overflows. And they also don't disinfect the, 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 the E. coli and human input that goes into the Chicago River. Every day, 360 days a year, they deliver sewage not compliant with the Clean Water Act to the Chicago River that goes to the Illinois River, goes to the Mississippi, and it's the largest source of nutrient pollutions in the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. So they do that, and when they can't handle it, they dump it in the lake. Uh, last year in March, uh, the, 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 so much came into the water system in the river that it on itself reversed itself and went out into the Great Lakes. Okay? And uh, when that doesn't happen, more frequently it ends up in people's basements, and the most basements it ends up into are the west side and south side of the city of Chicago. So it's a governance structure overseeing a, a, a built infrastructure that delivers pollution to the people who can least manage it. That is the kind of equitable problem we've, we're dealing with. And your, your point about insurance is that the insurance structure uh, and government continues to deliver benefits to those who are best well off. It is delivering benefits to incumbent interests, and that's what we need to take apart. Uh, I mean, Bill, Bill, in the sense, I mean, you're, you're very much 
We're, just, we're, I'm just going to riff on Henry's thing. It's all right. <laughs> okay. No, 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 no. But I was going to, no, but, but I was going to, but I was going to, but you know, you, you've talked about, you know, you're still working with governments here and not, it, it wasn't about rain barrels. I mean, so much of what you were no, talking about. No, you're actually about. talking about trying to solve the problem. I mean, I think the reality of the, of the problem that we're trying to address is the reality of, uh, the government we have, and the development patterns that we've established over a very long period of time. I think one of the most kind of fascinating things when you look at uh, kind of the connection between water, energy, and people, as you look at those kind of maps of the kind of night sky that show the intensity of energy, right, around the country. And it's like, whether it was for transportation or optimal location, we have built communities on water. And uh, we have uh, a set of sunk investments, uh, and we have a political system that is distributive in nature, that is representative in nature, uh, that assumes that the process is going to deliver the public interest. It doesn't set, we'll start with a set definition of public interest. It's the public interest is whatever we decide. You know, the reality is markets are imperfect, and they fail, and they have externalities. The reality is that government uh, has, uh, makes policies and programs that have hosts of unintended consequences even when they are trying to help. And the real challenge is how you make, how you make sense of all of this stuff. Uh, and while it is important to introduce market ideas uh, and discussions about value to things like the, insur- uh, the debate about insurance, the reality is government is not going to cede its role in protecting consumers. Protection of consumers, particularly around critical, even with private goods, with significant public elements to it, whether it's electricity, other utility services, insurance, they are not going to get out of the business of regulating it. Uh, and any time the pressure is on public officials, they're going to they're look for somebody to poke in the eye with a sharp, sharp stick, and utilities and insurance companies are great targets for it. It's just easy to do. Uh, I think the, the interesting thing, though, as we, uh, as society evolves, as technology invo- evolves, as we understand what some of our options are, uh, is that you get a, a better and more complete and transparent discussion and debate about what creates value, uh, anticipation and identification and resolution of unintended consequences, uh, and more integrated solutions to problems. The reality is we have to work within the system that we have. Uh, there, will be, uh, you know, there will be ways to come up with cool solutions, uh, but we're always going to be dealing with uh, retro, coming up with solutions that are basically retrofits uh, rather than brand new, uh, you know, brand new because we don't have a clean slate. The challenges of climate adaptation and mitigation are challenges of retrofitting our existing economy, retrofitting our existing government policies and programs, uh, and coming up with solutions that are more comprehensive uh, and more complete, and that probably a decade from now are going to have to be completely redone anyway because uh, the reality of our system is uh, interests with intense interests participate most actively, uh, they generally take uh, get a level of control and write the rules to favor them, uh, and they produce consequences that are inequitable and disparate for other parties, uh, and that is just the nature of the system we have. Um, very briefly, uh, to answer your question, what I think is uh, and, and the government should do, and maybe also try harder to pick to create some controversy. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I think the government should try to help markets provide correct price signals. I think that uh, a lot of the issues that we de deal with manifest themselves in private property, and private property has markets, and the markets need to have prices that reflect the true risks and the true costs of using that property. And if there is a cost that is dumped on others, an externality, that has to be internalized. If there is a cost that people are not aware of because they are irrational, that we have to figure out how to create it into a more kind of a, a visible cost so people can, can make that in account. But overall, to try to trust markets to work. Now, I understand that politics may interfere and all sorts of things. I'm not a politician, and I don't know necessarily how to get there. But I think that this is the kind of the gold standard, is to use, to use price signals uh, to work. This means that we don't think about the redistributive effects and the equitable effects in doing this. We're trying to just get things accurate. And that means that we, it has nothing to do whether the problem manifests itself in the south side, Chicago, or in Winnetka. The, if sewage, dumping sewage is too cheap for people relative to its social cost, it has to be priced right. And we have to pay a lot of money in our monthly utility bill for the sewage that we've dumped. Not, we're not paying enough. And vice versa. If we, don't have, we are overusing the water as they did, did in California, the solution is very simple. The price has to be higher and the market will clear. It cannot be given cheaper for some equitable or social reasons that distort these markets. Now, I understand that this might leave some people who are less affluent worse off. They can't afford to dump sewage. They can't afford to pay for the heat. They can't afford water. For These are problems, problems of affordability that have to be addressed on a need base, not to distort the price, but to provide subsidies to the households to use for particular, you know, to earmark it for particular uses because based on their income and their tax returns, they can't otherwise dump sewage or drink water or do whatever it is that they need to do. I but just, uh, just, so that, that's my solution. Yeah, yes. two kind of, uh, I guess, responses. And, and I agree with you. The more that uh, systems are more market-based, that they uh, essentially try to fully price impacts, uh, the better off we'll be. But it is a huge challenge for public policy, and it's a huge challenge for public policy and governments uh, for, for at least uh, two reasons. Uh, and the first is that the tendency of government officials to want to solve problems and solutions uh, and their reticence to sufficiently pay for it. So I have, you know, I mean, this whole discussion about climate mitigation and adaptation is the inability of government fundamentally to price an externality. So the, the first thing is, are, is government as a whole and individual units, are they really up to the task of coming up with market-based schemes that work? Uh, you know, NRDC, some of their experts have done some really good analysis on market-based solutions, but it is a constant challenge for government. The second thing, particularly as it relates to more utility-type services in areas where government gets in to regulate where markets do not exist or aren't sufficient, is the, the a kind of core concept of kind of universal service uh, and the kind of public nature of the goods. The things are too valuable to not ensure that everybody has it. And that is a 
That is a concept that government officials trip over time and time again. They simply do not have the luxury of acknowledging that they are leaving people that can't pay out and coming up with solutions uh, that actually solve the problem. Uh, So that's why you get these unintended consequences that flood people's basements uh, because there's a lack of acknowledgement. So I think those are two challenges for government, and I agree with your point uh, completely. I just uh, am wondering and kind of would ask the, the group what are some specific strategies that get government to understand the issues at play and then sufficiently, uh, sufficiently pay for them. And can I just say one, one quick thing about uh, absolutely if you put more accurate pricing on things, you will end up with much more likely better policies. No question about that. And uh, the distortions that occur, particularly uh, distortions that occur because people already have significant incumbent power and therefore can assure and ensure their access to that is important. But having a proper price on water in California would not deal with the fact that climate change is driving the disappearance of uh, the snowbanks that actually provide water, that the system is built around to, to take from, uh, from the mountains and deliver water to the needs below. Uh, the fact that that is not happening, the fact that it's not happening in the Himalayas, and the fact that that is significantly stressing the infrastructure in China, uh, are, are all objective things that do not have anything to do with the market. They have to do with objective realities that are overcoming the infrastructure that we have built based upon the presumption of a status quo that is no longer in play. We are in a different world, and we have to have responses that are public responses, and government needs to be involved in that. Otherwise, um, uh, you see what happens in Dafur. Yes. Lee? Um, yeah, so, so I wanted to kind of uh, push on this issue of, of prices, of when prices help us and when, when, they, when they might not be able to help us as much. Um, so a lot of this seems to me to depend on how policy malleable we think these particular risks are. Are they amenable to being managed through collective action? So if we're trying to figure out, if we just assume that there's a certain amount of blood risk, it's just sort of an objective fact and it's um, it's exogenously given, it's just sort of, this is what is the risk, then yeah, I think insurance markets are good at, at being able to price what that risk is. If the amount of that risk depends on infrastructure choices that require collective action, um, that require um, things that individual insured people, or even individual insurance companies can't sort of collectively come up with solutions, then it's not clear that the pricing is, is doing exactly what it, what it should do. And um, so I think that that matters a lot, sort of thinking about who's the right entity to kind of um, handle this and how much can be done through the market does depend on those collective action issues. The political story, you know, is very depressing and so on, and it's not clear that there's, there's answers to it. But, um, but but it does occur to me that if um, if we have something like a, a subsidy program that um, is, is being given to people to help them afford their insurance, um, setting aside all the terrible equity issues about that, um, it does seem like if the government is bearing that cost and there were a cheaper way, something cheaper than giving the subsidies to lower the risk, that they might be, as a collective actor, in a position to potentially do that. Again, if we make a lot of heroic assumptions about them being benevolently motivated and other things like that. Um, and and it's, it's not clear to me. Uh, at one point, I mean, you had kind of an optimistic uh, 
slightly optimistic political story that if, um, if we took away the subsidies and people who were living in flood areas um, saw how expensive it was, if they moved, we moved to political action to like go against climate change, it, it, it's not it's not totally clear that that would that that would come together that way as opposed to just getting the subsidies back. Um, I mean, I, I think you generally don't end up with, you are not going to generally end up with a perfect kind of system and outcome. I, don't, I think that does not diminish the need, kind of as Henry pointed out, to as much as possible put real cost on the books and define real value from different kinds of solutions and strategies so that you can align markets and align policy decisions. There's always going to be a very decentralized, messy system. It's how we designed it. It's how individual actions happen anyway. But uh, getting the reality, kind of first and foremost, getting the reality of the externalities in people's faces and on the books and forcing them to think about it, whether through its insurance prices or uh, emergency planning regulations or local land use requirements is absolutely essential uh, to the to coming up with uh, coming up with solutions, and you can see it, uh, you know, kind of in the, the with the idea of you know not letting a good crisis uh, go to waste. You see it in the development of emergency response policy uh, at the federal level as you go and look from one emergency to another. Uh, I think even it is the. Accommodation of the idea of adaptation in the debate about climate is probably one of the most helpful and forward-moving things. It doesn't minimize the need to mitigate, uh, but it makes real the consequences of not addressing the issue. You know, and you can see it. You know, in uh, uh, in uh, New Orleans and the Gulf Coast, you know, where equity issues were really were significant where FEMA dropped the ball. You had a significant amount of federal money going into HUD and community development block grants for response. And just by flowing the dollars through that system, you got a more holistic community-building proactive response. As that progressed from you know, the Gulf Coast up to Hurricane Sandy, you get more complete solutions. Uh, and you get a political environment primarily in New York where they're willing to engage and discuss. Now, New York is not going to cede the idea that they're going to you know, get rid of Manhattan. There is going to be as much a preservation and resilience and build it back as much as there is a kind of build it right, adapt, and, and mitigate. Uh, but having the consequences of, of actions, of not acting on externalities, uh, is driving the discussion and debate and the only way you'll move it forward is you've got to get those externalities on the books. And the reality is you're likely only going to get them on the books by achieving it through regulation uh, and regulation, particularly at the, at the federal level, uh, if, you're going to ha- if you're really going to move markets. Because they aren't sufficiently perfect and decision is, decisions aren't sufficiently centralized to get the outcomes that you need within the time frame that's required. I'll say one sentence, uh, a couple of sentences about your, your question. I think you're right that we need collective political action to change zoning laws and housing codes and things like that. That's not insurance can't do that, but the pressure to do it definitely could. I could see it coming from insurance prices. I just mentioned as an anecdote that the insurance, the one of the insurance industries institutes rates municipalities' housing codes according to their. Uh, the, the, the rigor with which they set flood and windstorm uh, uh, standards, namely mitigation standards, and how they enforce it and how they supervise it. And that affects uh, insurance policies and, and, and costs. 
Now I can, uh, can see the story how that would trickle through to, you know, political action. You want to, you know, the collective, the small town wants to have cheaper insurance uh, and live close to water but have cheaper insurance. So they regulate that houses have to be on stilts of a particular mm-hmm. level. And that, you know, the, that IIHS, the Insurance Institute of Housing Safety, will tell them how that would affect premiums, exactly the, the types of discounts that that feature would, uh, would lead to it. There's very interesting anecdotes. It could have, you could, we could follow what happened after Superstorm Sandy in the three states that were in, uh, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, and the different political responses to the rising in, uh, uh, premiums that were announced as a, as a result of the 2012 also uh, reform. And you could see immediately how they, you know, New Jersey's reaction was the weakest. Connecticut's was the most kind of privatized. The people were, li- you know, in, maybe because it's wealthier, lifting homes to on stilts, just raising existing homes. Uh, uh, New York setting aside a big chunk of money to buy the uh, floodplains that are going to be uh, more vulnerable in the future. So you can see the different political responses that are generated in the fear of another big kind of uh, price for the next storm. Mm-hmm. Yes, ma'am. Just to, yeah, I can say very briefly, you, you, hit, you hit the nail on the head, exactly part of what's going on. Because the federally-backed mortgage uh, guarantees require homeowners insurance, including flood in areas that are uh, in big, large flood risk and that, that the maps show exactly where, people can't afford it. If they can't afford it, they can't, buy, they can't get a mortgage. If they can't get a mortgage, they can't buy a home. So this, uh, this is where the pressure builds from, you know, allowing people to get to the, the, the American middle class dream of owning a home. Uh, and, uh, it is, uh, and that a lot, uh, explains a lot why the pressure to subsidize was so powerful, why the government provided that scheme in the first place, subsidized insurance, so as to make the mortgage lending uh, uh, apparatus work. Otherwise, it would come to a halt. Uh, that's also the source of the existing pressure. What I tried to show in this, in this data is that the people who can't afford the um, uh, insurance, the flood insurance, also can't afford to live in the first place, set aside weather risk, can't afford to live very close to water because they're priced out. So they are not going to need the major subsidies because they're going to move, live inland anyway. The story that we are helping middle-class people get to their homes is not, does not bear out in the data. Yeah, we're pushing them into uh, um, tornado alleys. 
where I it's think maybe we would, uh, but we maybe that's yeah. where we would want to have the real yeah. subsidies. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Time for maybe one more question. Yes, sir. Uh, a couple of things that you didn't mention. Uh, one was the role of the real estate industry in preserving these flood insurance subsidies. You could argue that there should be subsidized existing houses with flood insurance. As of now, nothing built in the future. Uh, but that would really the real estate industry. Uh, okay, uh, very briefly, I think you're exactly right that real estate industry is a big, gains big time from subsidized insurance. I mentioned the 10 million people that moved to live along the coastal Florida. That's 10 million real estate transactions. Now, maybe some of them would have happened anyway, so I'm not saying, uh, but, but the fear, the, the cries that we heard in 2013 and 14 that the elimination of subsidies would scare away buyers. People said, we can't sell our houses. People now look at the premiums and don't want to move here. Is exactly that kind of chilling effect on real estate market that would affect one constituent, which is the... As a, as regarding the earthquake, I'm not an expert on... Excuse me, forest fires. Forest fires, sorry. I know very little about it. This is mostly a West Coast problem. Um, I know a little bit more about the earthquake story in, in, in California, which is a very similar story, very high insurance rates that are, re that are um, regulated and capped and created a big mess, but I don't have any data to support any of the, these stories more, more concretely. Any more questions? Yes. Um, I, I think that what we need to be looking at what, and what Winneka has not done is looking at how uh, a, a broad green infrastructure investment in, in the village would work. <coughs> They've strongly uh, objected to, <coughs> to looking at this in, a, in an engineered sort of way. And the contracts they've had have all been premised upon uh, tunnel as the solution. There's a great deal more that can be done in terms of managing the water where it falls. Similarly, in, in Chicago, on the, throughout, throughout the city, <coughs> this can be done. I don't, I don't think that simply a green infrastructure approach is going to ma manage everything. We have to do a, uh, an investment in some of the, uh, some of the gray infrastructure, et cetera. Uh, but, but there is a great deal that can happen in Chicago that has not happened. You look at... A uh, range of cities like um, uh, Philadelphia has got a very strong cross-the-board approach toward green infrastructure as the first go-to piece. And what with that, and so they have policies. The 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 sewage authority is pushing the green infrastructure approach, uh, and and it is a less expensive and more effective response. Than simply putting it all into in, in, into into pipes, 
Milwaukee is doing the same thing in terms of their sanitary district um, in order to avoid some of the things that we've been having in terms of sewage bypass into Lake Michigan. Uh, Cleveland has a similar thing. But uh, the Chicago area has uh, significantly resisted that. There is something that is presently is a $50 million grant from US EPA uh, that the city of Chicago is doing on in the Edgewater um, area and, and impl implementing a, a, a green infrastructure approach to uh, parks and, and uh, streets. And I think that will be a proving ground for how that could be distributed more broadly within the region. But we have to have that in order to make some policy decisions. Can I follow up and just ask a question to, to Henry, but maybe to both of you? Um, has anybody done cost-benefit analysis of uh, these kind of solutions? I mean, I'm trying to sure at the, 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 the San Francisco stuff. It uh, yes. cost-benefit analysis is at the heart of it, and you see it uh, more and more. And oftentimes, you know, the, a lot of the great couple key points. Uh, the stuff has to be done at scale to be meaningful, and it has to be integrated into uh, an overall program, and you're likely going to get a combination of gray and green infrastructure solutions. But this idea of trying to figure out how decentralized strategies, including strategies at the customer site or you know at home uh, work, how you integrate those into a big solution are really where the – that's really the challenge. That's what everybody's trying to figure out. You've got to do it in terms of cost-benefit. I think one of the challenges, both in terms, particularly in terms of the benefits, is often the benefits are beyond system benefits, right? So it's like, okay, these two things equally manage the stormwater. The one's a little more costly, let's say the park, but the park provides all kinds of benefits to the neighborhood as a whole because you don't take your kids to the picnic down in the sewer pipe. You take them to a picnic in the park. It's like if there is a quantifiable benefit, if they perform equally well in the context of the system and there are benefits that are valued that need to be allocated is who pays for them and how. And I think that's really the kind of challenge and opportunity of communities uh, as they kind of grapple with this issue is how do you actually figure out how to pay for this stuff and how do you allocate the bill? If communities can figure that out, uh, you can get significantly better outcomes. Uh, they can't figure it out on their own, but Henry's point about, you know, pilots like the city of Chicago is trying to do on, uh, you know, uh, uh, on the north side are absolutely critical because you've got to sort through the stuff in a very practical sort of way and then figure out what needs to change, whether it's how you design systems, how you finance them, how you regulate them, uh, that, that level of tinkering and intervention is going to be required to get to better solutions. Yeah, and there's a similar thing in, in um, very near us. Aurora did a complete decombining of their sewer system, uh, and rather than building a large gray infrastructure to take all of the stormwater and dump it into a, a, a repository, they did distributed green infrastructure, which was less expensive, is performing higher, and has a series of uh, property benefits in terms of the central city itself. Um, and you similarly have a lot of data about this on the, on the Philadelphia and uh, on, on the Philadelphia experience of distributed green infrastructure. There's a lot of uh, material out there. I think we've kind of hit the 
10 o'clock uh, mark. I see a couple more questions. If folks would want to come down and continue discussing with our panelists, that would be great. Thank you again for coming, and thank you for our panelists as thank well. You. It's a real pleasure. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.